The mystique of venture capital means investors are often revered, but should they be listening more closely to the entrepreneurs they invest in? Today on Off the Sidelines. Welcome back to season two of Off the Sidelines, your guide to becoming a better investor. The world needs a new generation of great companies and we need your help. As always, I'm your host, Chris Wink. I'm the CEO of Technically. We're a news organization that helps you navigate your career and, and fast change local economies. This is a podcast that takes a deep dive into trends in business investing. Off the Sidelines is sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. Today, episode two of the second season of Off the Sidelines. We are asking, what can investors learn from entrepreneurs? To get to that question, I enlisted some help from Technically Reporter Dante Kirby. Hey there, Dante. Hey, Chris. What up? So, Dante, uh, help me out. T tell the folks, what are we doing here? So, we wanted to get into what are the ingredients and experiences that entrepreneurs might have that all investors should keep in mind. Right. And the idea that, that investors might learn something from entrepreneurs is not quite the pop culture narrative. Because instead, that is... You know, when you watch Shark Tank, the the dynamic is that the entrepreneur is coming to the altar of capitalism to seek wisdom. Exactly. In today's culture, there's this feeling like investors are these all-knowing capitalist machines and the entrepreneur yes, is a passionate person trying to solve a problem. Yeah, I like the machine part. So so the, the entrepreneur who who cashes out and gets into investing either as an angel or through some other vehicle, that's not the journey of all investors. Yeah, like anything in life, it's a lot more complicated than that. There's plenty of experienced entrepreneurs and inexperienced investors. Uh, even more people in VC and investing come from different backgrounds. There are people with strong finance backgrounds or just people with a lot of money who get into investing for a lot of different reasons. Right, right. So so knowing that those finance folks or, or folks who have, you know, high net worths that get into this for a variety of different reasons, we wanted to steal down some of the lessons and perspectives that all investors might want to take from entrepreneurs, even if they haven't done that entrepreneurial journey so explicitly. Okay. All right. So to do that, we're going to build on on our own reporting here technically. Um, but we also had three conversations that we're going to pull into today's episode. And each of their own ways, they have a whole lot of experience on both the entrepreneur and the investor side of things. So yeah, they're going to help us learn what investors can and should understand about entrepreneurs. What entrepreneurs do that investors should copy and make better so they can make more impactful investments and how investors can be better partners with the entrepreneurs they support. The first person we spoke to was Emily Foote Williams. Chris, you did this interview. Right. And Emily founded and sold an e-learning startup. I, I also, side note, have to say, as a new parent myself, she is a, a kind of inspiration to me. I at least twice saw her taking calls while at tech events, while rocking a baby to sleep. Emily raised several rounds of investments as a first-time founder without a business background. And she grew her company before the full explosion of resources and, and widespread startup culture became so familiar. I was a teacher for five years in Atlanta and Southeast DC and North Philly. And then I practiced special education law. And so I did, had zero finance background. And this was in 2011 when we started. And there was information out there about 
you know, started, but not as much as there is today in terms of educating the entrepreneur so that power dynamic is shortened or or not as not as acute. But I knew how to surround myself with people who did have business building experience. And that helped from a perspective of lessening that power dynamic. Today, she's even more familiar with that power dynamic between entrepreneur and investor because... I'm six months in on the opposite side of the table on an investor role at, at Osage Venture Partners. The second voice we'll hear from is also a founder turned funder. Dante, you had a conversation with the fellow. His name is McKeever Conwell. Well, I go by Mac. Software engineer by trade. Spent seven years as a government contractor with the top secret clearance before starting my first startup in 2010 with two of my best friends. Ran that for four and a half years. Exited that one. Started a company after that. Ran that for two years. That one didn't work out. So I got a win and a loss. Before I found my way to the Maryland Technology Development Corporation, or TEDCO. Uh, TEDCO is the largest funder of early stage tech companies in the state of Maryland. I started off on the seed investment team. I later led the initiative to create what's now known as the Builder Fund, which is the first and only state-backed pre-seed fund for women and minorities in the country. Ran that for two years and then spent a year on the um, doing uh, portfolio management before leaving that job to start Rare Breed Ventures, uh, an early stage venture firm doing pre-seed and seed investments. Mac is a rare breed indeed. Yeah, so technically has reported on him for years. He's a kind of intellectually honest entrepreneur, the, the likes of which we, we just don't always see a lot when we report on founders. Yeah, I didn't know of him before I did this interview. So I checked the technically archives and learned he founded a couple startups that didn't go quite as planned. He closed both for different reasons. So he's seen the good, the bad and the ugly of entrepreneurship. That's right. I've heard him tell some pretty brutal stories of business low points. And the third voice we'll hear from is a voice many are familiar with if they love NPR. It's Guy Raz, the host and creator of How I Built This, a popular NPR podcast that tells the stories of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Chris, you interviewed Guy during Introduce, Technically's big annual conference. Right. And, and though How I Built This is its own you know, kind of media company, Guy hasn't been a founder or a funder in perhaps the familiar sense. But that said, he, he's probably spent as much time, if not more, talking about, learning about the process of entrepreneurship, investment, and business growth, probably more than anyone. So even if it's through the lens of storyteller, he, he's got a brand new book with lessons from entrepreneurs. I, I took a class at a business school 12 years ago, just on a whim. And I expected it to be uh, full of abstract ideas and, and theories. And, and it was actually told through stories. The first day we received a case study, which was the story of Howard Schultz and Starbucks. And I was blown away. I didn't realize that business schools were taught that way. As the class progressed and we started to read more and more of these case studies of founders and the businesses they founded and the challenges they went through. And about seven years later, I decided to start working on the show, How I Built This. And it is a narrative journey into the, the lives and the stories of some of the most iconic brands and products in the world. And now it's not just a podcast, it's a, a conference, it's live events, and now it's a, it's a book. Right, so together, Emily, Mac, and Guy are going to help us string together different lessons that investors can learn from entrepreneurs and how, by doing so, they can make bigger, more positive impact on the world, and, and sure, bigger returns. But. Before we talk about how investors should be like entrepreneurs, 
we want to understand how they're different from entrepreneurs. Yeah, founders and funders go into business together every day. That's normal. There's a lot of success stories of an entrepreneur and investor being in complete sync on time and horizon and goals for the organization. But it's not uncommon for both sides to meet at the table with very different goals and incentives. I know many of the founders that I've interviewed will say we wanted we are looking to create a hundred year brand, you know, and, and that could be John Zimmer of Lyft or Jeremy Stoppelman of, of Yelp or I'm talking about tech companies here, but it could be Stacy Madison of Stacy's Pita Chips. I mean, she she does she the company was acquired, but a lot of these Gary Erickson of Cliff Bar, I mean he he sees his brand as a hundred year company. He still owns it. I think that that there is a a commitment in this country among many entrepreneurs to build something and to build something that endures, sustains and lasts and provides employment and, and a life for hundreds of people over time. And though, of course, there are plenty of value investors with long-term horizons, especially in public markets, investors in private markets, especially in today's climate of early stage investing, many of them do have a very different timeline in mind. A VC, their job is to evaluate a business that is going to get them a 10x return in a very short period of time. A lot of startup founders need the VC cash. They go that direction. They go that route. A lot of people I've had on the show went to family foundations and took a different route, which served them in a much better way because family foundations have a much longer time horizon. You know, they're not looking for 10x return in 10 years. They're looking to invest in for 50 years if, if need be. Right. And I've done enough reporting to know, I, I hear you in the audience, some of you who know that, that there should be a perfect match between investor and entrepreneur in time horizon goals. And that is true. But even though there are many founders are looking to build something long-term, like Guy points out, and that other founders uh, have ways to self-fund a company, or at least start off with that in mind. At the end of the day, some start companies with a plan that is built around outside investment. And that gives the investor tons of leverage in the relationship at the start. Exactly. In my interview with Mac, we talked about this. As the investor, you're the one with the money. So like, you know, some founders can pitch you whatever or tell you whatever they want. But at the end of the day, like, you know, if they want to get funding from you, like, you know, there's certain terms or certain agreements or certain valuations that you want. I asked Emily Foote Williams about the topic of power. I think when you think about the power dynamics, the investor... They do have many more options of where to put their money than maybe an entrepreneur does from a perspective of where to get their money. And right. so, you know, that's where I think the power dynamic comes in. They can, they can always walk away. And so it makes founders sometimes almost subservient when they're talking to investors, right? Like, I will do anything and everything I need to do to impress you so I can get this money. And that's not really the way you want to be, Right. You want to make sure that you're raising money from somebody who wants to be a real partner, somebody's one to support. It's like getting married, right? Like the average investment, early stage investment lasts longer than the average marriage in the United States. On top of this, there is also the fact that entrepreneurs are expected to be fully invested in the one thing they are building. Many, if not all of them, risk livelihoods and certainly reputations. I know that. And they bet everything that they can make one idea or product succeed. Investors, on the other hand, by virtue of their business, have a lot more room for error. If you are a successful VC, you're failing 99 times out of 100. You're putting all of every single chip on the roulette table is covered. 
you're putting a chip on every single number on the roulette table, every color, you are going to win. It's a closed world. You've got a pot of gold from other really rich people, and you're taking that pot of gold and you're making bets, but taking big chunks of equity. And you know, because you've done the math, that even if nine of these lose, one of these is going to be big. That is a dynamic that is just super fundamentally different between entrepreneur and investor. The question that you have to ask yourself is, when I set out to solve a problem, which is basically the foundation of a business, right? It's there's a problem in the world and I see that problem and I am going to solve that problem with a product or service that improves on that problem and hopefully solves it. So the question is, is the problem you're trying to solve one that only you have and maybe a tiny number of people have, or is it a problem that you're solving that you have and that maybe more people have and that maybe more people begin to realize they have? Mac again. Really what investors need to understand is you don't need to like the idea or understand the market to make an investment in a great company, right? One of the most famous examples of that is Spanx. You know, most of the people that I found the pitch to clearly did not get or understand what she was selling, right? Because they weren't like, it was a product they would never use. And it was a product they just, they equated to something they already knew on the market. Like it's just pantyhose. Like, well, how is another pantyhose company going to be successful? But it was so much more than that, right? So it's really easy to see a product and be like, this isn't unique. I don't get the value prop. I'm out. Well, you don't need to get the value prop. It's not about you as the investor. It's about the customers. And so if you get pitched a company that you don't understand or you don't know the market, but it's growing and something's there, go talk to customers. Go find out why. And if you take the time to do that, you'll make good investments. If you don't understand a community or a customer profile and you go off a gut, you're going to end up missing out on things because you've lost the ability to be subjective on an investment. And so when you look at investments purely objectively and not subjectively, you're lying to yourself because I promise you some of, the, some of your best investments or some of the investments you made, there was a subjective approach to that entrepreneur or to that company or to the industry that you took versus when you see a minority founder that might be building something that you don't understand and you make the complete analysis 100% objective, you're now pitting that entrepreneur against a completely different bar than all the others you're seeing. And that's a mistake I see time and time again. I'll give you an example. Tristan Walker, who created a brand called Bevel, it's a double-edged, single-blade razor. He is he's a black man who all his life struggled with shaving, because, like many black men, like many men with very tight curls in their hair. Because what happens is when you shave and use a, a Gillette five-blade razor, it shaves under your skin, and your, your hair grows back into your skin, and it creates scars and painful razor bumps. And Tristan didn't feel like there were any products that were designed for him and for people like him, his friends. You know, all of the, the razors that were designed to prevent razor bumps were like found in the dusty, you know, ethnic aisle. And he felt like this was a problem that he could solve. And the way he wanted to solve it was to produce not only a great razor, but a beautiful razor. And he wanted to create a razor for him and for people like him who had the same problem, but that was beautifully designed and packaged and sat right next to the Gillette razors and the other razors and was an excellent product. Well, he had a hard time finding funding. He had a hard time 
scaling that product because there were lots of people who just didn't see the market for it, who said to him time and again, I don't see who's going to buy this. But he knew, he knew who was going to buy it because he knew that he had this problem and that millions of other men and women had this problem. And he knew that if he couldn't solve it, then nobody could. That if he couldn't actually convince people that this was a problem, nobody could. And so despite the setbacks and despite the pushback and despite the getting close to insolvency, he pushed <laughs> forward. He kept moving forward. And today it's it's now a subsidiary of Procter & Gamble and a very successful product and available in every you know Target and Walmart and, and, and Walgreens and so on. So as an entrepreneur, you know, your risks, your frustrations, your product maturity, your setbacks, the internal dynamics, even the best diligence could really fail to uncover that. And I'm hoping that my experience as an entrepreneur now and the investor, since I know all those details and nuances, I'll be able to help surface them better and really understand kind of the question since I, I live that day-to-day life that the entrepreneur is. The point is that there just is a different mindset that a one-time entrepreneur turned investor is going to have that they can bring to the table negotiating or mentoring or advising another entrepreneur, particularly an earlier first-time entrepreneur. And the finance wonks and, and, and really great spreadsheet, those things are crucial to a mature and informed investment thesis, but there are lessons from the entrepreneur. So, Chris, about this business timeline thing, it feels like different entrepreneurs and different investors are just going to want different things. This seems pretty obvious, but it seems important. Right. Yeah, it's it's not good companies and good investors versus bad companies and bad investors all the time, <laughs> though that probably exists. It does exist. It's just a sorting and matching of the right relationships. Lots of people listening to this are going to say, any misaligned expectations between investor and entrepreneur is a failure. And I think that's right. But it's also true that a lot of businesses, especially in an era of software and and the web, they don't even need infusions of capital. But for a kind of growth company, many do. Yeah, so investors and entrepreneurs need to agree right at the beginning, whether they're building a 100-year brand or they want to go public or have a plan to grow for five or seven years and be acquired, right? Yes, sure. Maybe this is what I'm getting at. Entrepreneurs know that big market forces can change those plans. A cold, rational economics viewpoint might say one should never diverge from the plan. I think investors have to have some trust in the entrepreneur and know that they have to respond to those market forces. And some, maybe the better investors do get that. They tend to be ones, in my experience, who have been informed by the entrepreneurial journey. So I think the real lesson that founders turn funders do grasp is that those plans may change and what the goal is might adapt, which sounds like a scary thing to say. Misaligned incentives will always end in bad outcomes, no matter what happens. I mean, if you're looking at a product like Bevel, does it matter if you get a 10x return on that or does it matter if it has a huge cultural impact that's actually the measure of what makes that brand success, um, valuable, right? So I would say, could there be a world where we actually create a new model, where there, there is more sort of a, a grant-based system? I interviewed these guys who started a company called, um, I'm blanking on the name, but it's a, this is an African-American launched venture. It's a haircutting business. 
you can sign up through an app and book a haircut. And they got a grant from the city of Buffalo. And the only stipulation was you got to open up an office in Buffalo and you got to hire people in Buffalo. But that's it. We don't have equity. I love that model. So to me, there's a it's not about what can people starting a business teach entrepreneurs in VC. It's how can we think of new models to fund businesses? If you really are serious about building equity and really helping create more black and brown entrepreneurs, you're better off building a fund that can give out grants and can just seed businesses no strings attached with guidance, of course, and with help and with resources, but, but without the pressure of where's my 10x return in two years. And now we're getting to this bigger point of pursuing new market opportunities. A lack of diverse founders means a lack of diverse customers. To change that, we can also model off entrepreneurs. I think top of funnel is is paramount here. So we at Osage and, and every other VC firm should be measuring how many diverse entrepreneurs are you seeing so you can keep pushing those numbers up. And I think you can learn a lot from what business builders and CEOs are doing on that front of how they're ensuring that their talent pipeline is similarly stacked so that they are continuing to to build a diverse team. There's a great firm in Philly. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's called Diverse Force. It's a human capital firm, but they also have a recruiting arm. And in that arm, they, d- they designed this product, which takes takes cues from something called um, the Rooney Rule in, mm-hmm. that's in the NFL. And the rule basically says that you need two or more diverse candidates on your slate when you're filling, filling a role. And the impact is clear. I mean, the stats around diverse teams are, are clear to all of us. And so I think investors you know, need to do something like what Diverse Force is helping companies do with their talent pipeline. We just need to do it with our deal flow. This might remind some of you of episode one of this season of Off the Sidelines, network effect. Who you know can be both opportunity or in, in a closed system of relationships, it can be damning. Like it's one thing to say, hey, we want to invest in underrepresented founders. That's cool. Now go out there and go find them, you know. A lot of investors have, you know, get their deal flow through networks. And it's the same networks they've had for however long. Well, a lot of these underrepresented founders aren't in those networks. So go expand your network. And going to expand your network can be difficult. It can be awkward. It can be uncomfortable. But if you never do that, you're never going to get to the point where you have a more diverse portfolio. And we already know that more diverse portfolios outperform. Like you got to put in the effort and you got to leave your office or get into different communities, join different Slack groups, join different virtual, you know, events that you normally wouldn't go to. And it's going to be okay. I promise you it'll be okay. You know how I know it's going to be okay? Because I've had to do it. When I started um, the pre-seed fund in Baltimore and here in Maryland, one of the things I did was anything that had to do with diversity or inclusion or anything in tech, I tried to go to or support or go to the events. And so one of the events I went to was to the local chapter, to the Baltimore chapters of the of Lesbians Who Tech. And so I went to a Lesbian Who Tech meetup here in Baltimore. And I was the only guy there. I was probably the first guy to ever show up to one of their events. And when I showed up, everybody was confused and like, who are you and why are you here? And I explained to them like, look, I'm a tech investor and I'm looking for entrepreneurs who are building tech companies. You know, this is a meetup group for women who create tech. I wanted to meet some women in tech. And it was uncomfortable, but I, I came very honest and open with them. I told them up front I might make some mistakes. If I make a mistake, please don't yell at me or cuss me out. Just let me know. 
I am here to to be an ally. I'm here to support. If there's something I need to fix about a terminology I use, whatever, just let me know. And you know what? They were really nice to me. I did make some mistakes. They pointed it out. I know better now. Those are mistakes I won't make again. And in that process, I made some really good connections. And one of the connections I made was to a young woman there who also later went on to become the head of incubator at Johns Hopkins University, right? Now, that is an amazing connection that has worked out really well for me in my career. And that's somebody I call a friend, right? But I never get to develop that relationship with her or even get to meet her if I don't go to that event. And I don't go there and be authentic and be willing to be uncomfortable. Like, you know, as a black man who is a minority, who, you know, has, you know, Trumpets, you know, DNI, I can still feel uncomfortable in situations. And it was okay. Right? And so for all the other investors out there, go do that. You'll be okay. Most like people just aren't going to be just inherently mean to you. They're not going to hate you. We come to find out time and time again, we have more things alike than we do differently. So at the end of the day, entrepreneurs are about changing the world. Investors in a strict sense are here to get returns that outpace other asset classes. But I know enough investors that style themselves as also shapers of capitalism and the economy and the world. So I'd say they ought to remember the lessons from entrepreneurs that the only work worth doing is ambitious. Yeah, I mean, listen, this is a marathon of a of a challenge, right? This is a challenge that will not be solved overnight and and can't just be solved through entrepreneurship. I'm not one of these people that believes that business has the answers to everything because it's nonsense. Business doesn't have the answers to everything. And business can't, by the way. The government, the federal government, us, we, we with our tax dollars have the ability to scale massive change. And so in order to address things like systemic racism, you have to start with policy and legislation and fundamental changes to the law. That is the first and most important step, because otherwise you're essentially saying to, to the population, hey, you guys figure it out and, and you guys can you know, let the markets figure it out. There it is. Guy Raz talking about needed systemic change. <laughs> right. And not every investment podcast ends with talking about systemic racial inequality or the opportunities that that represents. It's an uncomfortable place for a lot of investors, maybe even most investors who, surprise, are disproportionately a lot of white guys. But if entrepreneurs are at their best when they're solving bold problems, this seems like a place I want to see confident problem solvers. So for me, if there's a lesson for investors, from entrepreneurs, it's like, holy hell, get some ambition beyond monthly active users. So Dante, between the guy's interview and your conversation with Mac and mine with Emily, both founders turned investors, what do you think investors got to keep in mind, bottom line, especially ones who might not come from entrepreneurship? You can only bullshit for so long. <laughs> Yeah. Eventually, everyone is going to need to be their authentic selves, authentic about their wants and visions and shortcomings if the business relationship is going to work. Right. Like we also often think about the entrepreneur as bullshitting. I think maybe we're going through an era of saying investors have been bullshitting along the way, too. Yeah. And entrepreneurs who are going to succeed, even the smartest ones, are going to have their assumptions tested. They're going to get told no. And there's a real empathy I think investors who have been on the other side get. 
I also think it's important for investors to remember that power dynamics do change. Technically has done a lot of reporting on how repeat founders and companies that have built up a track record and are growing, they start being in a place where investors, particularly in this era, are pursuing them. Right. It's like an athlete that's in free agency who has had a lot of teams pursuing them. They remember that GM that did another player dirty or when a contract <laughs> was a bit too team friendly. I, I follow that. So, so there's a humility that investors have to keep in mind. Shocking. And maybe something they could even learn from entrepreneurs, perhaps not a class we often think of as having a lot of humility themselves. But when you think you know the answer is often when you miss a big paradigm shift. That's what investors say they're looking for. I can't grasp enough that we've pushed entrepreneurs at getting better at this. It seems investors need the same kind of challenge. All right, Dante, this is pretty good. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it. That's this episode, the second of season two of Off the Sidelines. If you love this podcast, subscribe. If you even like it, you should still subscribe. Better yet, leave a comment, please, truly, right now. Just give us a little comment. It helps so much. Like, as always, music is by Blue Dot Sessions. The episode was produced by Q9 Creative, including Kevin Schmidlin and Catherine Nails, with post-production by Max Graham. I'm technically CEO Chris Wink. We'll be back next week. Thanks, Dante. Bye. Bye.